Hey, Paul, and welcome back to season two of the Pope Francis show. I can tell you I am pumped to be diving into this new season with you. So woohoo to season two. Yeah, I'm really happy. We took a couple months off and and we're ready to go. I can't believe the the response that we've had that just snowballed uh, with this show after we kind of we wrapped it and took a little break to decide on the theme of season two and then the feedback and the members to the community and the people just replaying and going back through the episodes. What's been something that really stood out from you in the last two months, looking back at season one? Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, I've gotten a handful of messages from people where like one particular episode would resonate for them. And I don't even know if they listen to any of the other episodes, but they're like this episode. Uh, I mean, I had one person tell me, like hearing this episode, like it just like a cloud was lifted, uh, mm -hmm. as they were hearing things. So that's been kind of cool. Um, but yeah, as you said, since we wrapped up season one, I think half as many viewers as we had following us through season one have had it. So welcome to everyone who is new here. Absolutely. And, uh, so for this season, we're talking about Catholic social teaching. And the entire season, I think it's like what twelve episodes here. We have we have guests coming on. There's some very exciting names uh, that we're bringing to you this season. Uh, we're spending this episode talking about what is Catholic social teaching and why devote such a big deal to it. So let's let's just get right into it. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore, but who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic church, her teachings and her practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the charisma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teaching of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. Paul, take it away. Um, Let's review the four main principles of Catholic social teaching. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of ways to slice and dice Catholic social teaching. I've heard seven principles. I've heard nine principles. I've heard four principles. Um, a couple of years ago, back in 2020, uh, Catholic author Mark Shea released a book called The Church's Best Kept Secret, A Primer on Catholic Social Teaching. And I've read a lot about Catholic social teaching over the past several years. And his book is like hands down the most accessible book about Catholic social teaching out there. And he divided it into four principles. And I really liked the way that he structured that and the way he was able to fit all of the different things that are in Catholic social teaching within those four. So I'm uh, shamelessly borrowing uh, okay. that framework, but you should definitely uh, check out his book. Um, so those four are the, first of all, the, the infinite dignity of the human person. Mm -hmm. And then the second is the common good. The third is subsidiarity, which is a word we don't really hear that much. Uh, and then the fourth is solidarity. And today what we're going to do is talk about, um, some background, some history, some development, what is Catholic social teaching? And then later on, we'll jump into each of those four pillars. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because my sense of what this means is very hazy. And if someone were to put me against the wall, I don't know that I could necessarily 
spell it out. So I think there's a lot of people who are like that. Hence the title, Best Kept Secret. Uh, I think a lot of us, especially if we're, you know, faithfully practicing Catholics and like really attentive to stuff, we might already be discerning some of this in a cloudy way. So getting clarity on this, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, that was very similar to my journey, conversion, I guess, in the Catholic social teaching. Like I got an undergraduate undergraduate degree in theology and I learned next to nothing about Catholic social teaching. I think that was offered as an elective. I think I wanted to take it and I just missed it or something. Um, but I knew next to nothing about it. And in college I was, so in college I was very active in uh, the pro-life movement. I ran the, um, uh, the pro-life student group for several years. Um, organized going to the March for life, organized going in front of the abortion clinic. It was like, I, I devoted a lot to that. Mm -hmm. And I was very proudly, uh, a one issue voter. Okay. And yeah, that was the extent of what I thought about how, how ought a Catholic participate? In politics, I was like, well, they should be one issue voters because abortion is that important. And I saw that view as uh, solidly orthodox and anyone else saying anything different, especially those liberal Catholics, like they were all wrong and they were all heretics. And I mean, and these things sound like tropes, but this is what I believed for many years. This is what I believed. And it wasn't until after I had graduated for a few years um, especially in the lead up to the 2016 election where things weren't sitting well with me. The answers that I had previously had to my challenges or questions about like this really conservative culture war, narrow political view, um, the easy answers that I had before weren't satisfying. And then you know, as any of our American listeners are familiar, the 2016 election had the big, big upset with Trump. And he really threw a whole, a whole wrench into, uh, the way people always did politics. It seemed like, mm -hmm. and I saw a lot of people who I saw as colleagues, as coworkers in the pro-life movement, a lot of leaders and writers I admired, at least from my mind, like they seemed to like throw in their principles and throw in their integrity for the sake of trying to get power, um, trying to get this guy elected. And after the 2016 election, I just was really frustrated and disillusioned with all of it. So I really dove into the church's social teaching, which I hadn't really before. And it remit, but before that it was this, like you had said, it's a thing that's there. And I kind of know some things about it, but then once I started reading, um, yeah, it was like my political home for many years. Uh, I left that home. I didn't like it anymore. And Catholic social teaching became uh, a new home. I've been, uh, it hasn't been a comfortable home, but I've been quite happy there for the past several years. I think that is the thing about being Catholic, no matter what culture you're in, it's not, um, 
uh, there's a line from a movie that just keeps escaping me. Anyhow, it's not a it's not a tame line. It's not a comfortable thing. It's not something that you do because, well, it brings you a sense of comfort in how to get through your days. It's it's not actually because invariably every culture that you live in has some deep problem with it, something that's rooted in a flawed understanding of human nature or how the world works or how economy should be put together. And the church comes in and says, well, maybe yes, maybe no, you know. What would Jesus do? Yeah, I think if I think if a Christian is pretty comfortable in, in any political party or ideology, um, then there's probably something about Catholic social teaching that uh, uh, that's there that will, will make them uncomfortable. So that's one of my goals this season is to make all of our listeners uncomfortable. <laughs> all righty. Well, cool. So let's. Let's get into that. So if, if someone, like I said, someone would ask me, like, what is social teaching? I think the limits of my understanding would be, well, I don't know. Does it have to do with business? It's it's probably got to do with poor people. Um, Pope Francis seems to like this, I think. Um, too much, maybe? I don't know. Uh, so let's, let's get into some of that. Uh, what is Catholic social teaching? Yeah, so um, if you step way back, Catholic social teaching is a part of the church's moral teaching. So like all of the other church's teachings on moral issues, Catholic social teaching falls into that. So it's a social morality. And this social morality goes all the way back to uh, the Old Testament. Um, When God gave commands to his people as Israel was being formed into a nation, God consistently gave commands to his people to take care of uh, the most vulnerable. And uh, some scripture scholars call these the quartet of the vulnerable. It was always four groups of people. It was the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner or the immigrant. These were the people who had the least amount of power uh, in society, the most disenfranchised. So therefore, God's people had the most responsibility to give them like deferential treatment. Mm-hmm. And the Lord would echo this where he's like, remember, you were once a slave in Egypt. You were once the one who was uh, on the margins. And, you know, you know, you were the ones who had someone else's heel on your neck. Remember that as you treat those who are now vulnerable and marginalized. And God tied Israel's, like, temporal good and temporal prosperity Mm -hmm. to how they treated the poor. So the prophets throughout the Old Testament, when they would go after the leaders of Israel, they would go after them for their unfaithfulness um, to God personally, right? Their worship of uh, false idols. Mm -hmm. And they would go after them for their lack of faithfulness to God's commands specifically on how to treat the poor and the vulnerable. So then when all these calamities happened and you know, uh, like Assyria attacked Israel and Babylon attacked Israel. There was this, there was this real sense of like, yeah, cause you weren't faithful. You weren't faithful to the Lord personally, and you weren't faithful to his commands to take care of the poor. I remember a moment that really, um, just struck me, uh, a couple of years, a couple of years, 12 years ago now, um, there was an EWTN like family celebration, uh, like two, three hours away from where we lived. And, I think it was in Philadelphia, maybe, or something. So was it the world meeting of families? 
I don't even remember anymore. It was I just there was like a big stadium. There were a couple of thousand people there. Um, it's been a decade. I don't even remember the details. But I just remember this one moment where we were all in the, the stadium, or not a stadium. It was a, a big sports stadiums hall thing. Anyway, packed with people, and we're up in the bleachers and so on. And, and when communion time came, I don't know why all of a sudden it stood out and struck me. But the priests came down holding. Um, the Eucharist, and they would walk down through the lines looking for all of the people in wheelchairs and all the old people and the infirm and the elderly, and they would give them all communion first, and everybody was quiet, or maybe there was some, you know, Eucharistic hymn going, and then the priests went back up to the front, and then everybody else sort of filed out and so on. And that just struck me, because it's so completely um, opposite to the way the rest of the world is put together, where the young and the strong survive and the rest kind of deal for themselves. And this sense of, you're all young and healthy, that's fantastic, you can afford to wait. We are here to take care of, and we must prioritize uh, the weak and the infirm and the elderly. And a culture that puts its strength, that puts its energy to that kind of safeguarding. Uh, I think if you were to ask me like, what is Catholic social teaching? My mind would go to that moment as a, an example where we create a life um, where uh, the entirety of the human life cycle is respected, uh, as opposed to what happens a lot to, you know, today where we, we fetishize an element or an age range of human living and then just kind of dismiss all the rest. Um, so. Yeah, and that's both, um... Your sense is absolutely correct. And with scripture, it's both on a personal level. I personally ought to be concerned with the vulnerable, um, but also on a social level. So again, when God was forming his people and giving them the, the way of life he wanted them to live, one of the things was uh, every 50 years, so every 70, so Every seventh day, there was a Sabbath day, a day of rest. And every seventh year, there was a Sabbath year. And every seventh, seventh year, so it'd be 49 years. The year after that, every 50 years, was the Jubilee year. Mm-hmm. And every Jubilee year, all debts in the nation would be forgiven. And all uh, property that was sold, all land, would go back to the original families. And we think about this today in our economy, and that is wild, yeah. like something from a different planet. Yeah. But this was how like the Lord wanted his, his people to live. Um, and one of the things that this did was it prevented generational poverty. Mm-hmm. It prevented like this huge inequality that put people down for generations and generations. Mm -hmm. So there's both an individual level and a social level. And then uh, Jesus takes this teaching from the Old Testament and runs with it. So he says, you have all these laws from the Old Testament and he sums them up to love God and love neighbor. And as Pope Francis has taught, well, you love God. He's like, 
so Pope Francis says, uh, uh, Jesus takes all of the laws and he distills them down to two faces, the face of God and the face of your neighbor. And then Francis corrects himself and says, actually, it's one face, the face of God in the face of your neighbor. Right? Uh, and then Jesus doesn't just tie our temporal good to the way we treat the vulnerable. He ties our eternal salvation to the way we treat the vulnerable. Right? This is the, um, uh, the great teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25, where he talks about the end of the world and where he will come again and he'll stand amongst all peoples and he'll divide them into the sheep and into the goats, the saved and the unsaved. And he'll say to those who are saved, he'll say to the righteous ones, or he'll, he'll turn to them and they'll respond to Jesus and say, why are we here? Why are we saved? Hmm. And Jesus will say to them, well, when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was an immigrant, you welcomed me. And when I was sick, you took care of me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And they'll be like, when did we do these things? And Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of your brothers, you did for me. So Jesus, he does two things in this parable. Hmm. He ties our eternal salvation to how we treat the vulnerable. And he explicitly identifies himself, not with the powerful, but with the most vulnerable. And this is throughout all of his, Jesus's teachings. He proclaims an upside down kingdom, right? Even when he's still in his mother's womb, Mary in her great Magnificat says, uh, you know, uh, blessed are the poor and the hungry. And she talks about how the Lord will send the rich away empty. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the sorrowful. Jesus talks about how difficult it is for the rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Um, all of this. Okay, so in Jesus's time and in our time, mm -hmm. We have this sense that if someone has wealth, they're blessed. We even hear this in our own rhetoric where someone has a nice car, someone has a boat, someone, you know, has a vacation house, whatever. And, and we say things like, oh, they're blessed with that vacation house. They're blessed with that good job. They're blessed with whatever. And that's precisely the opposite of Jesus's message. The people who were blessed, Jesus said, were those who were poor and those who were vulnerable. Because implicit in this idea that if wealth is a blessing, mm -hmm. implicit in that is that those who don't have wealth are therefore not blessed by the Lord. And that's exactly the opposite of the kingdom of God. I see that there's an, it's at this point of the scriptures of the gospel message where there's the one I can tell, the, the closest overlap, for example, with the great Buddhist traditions, where they're all about eliminate or the elimination of suffering and the treating of kindness to everybody. Christ is, comes in and he says, yes, we must do that because I am not everybody, but I am present within everybody. You do all of this for me, not for the negative sense of eliminating suffering, for the positive sense of doing good and uh, it's like blessing me back. It's like we say to God, you know, blessed be God, blessed be, you know, his holy name. 
I don't know. I still don't exactly understand how we're, we do that, but it, I think it's our effort to do good, to bless him for the blessings that he bestowed on us first. It, it's precisely the way that he asked us, he who needs nothing from us, asked us to serve him and to praise him is precisely through our service to the poor and the vulnerable. Um, this teaching didn't end with Jesus. Obviously we, we hear in, um, Acts of the apostles, how, um, those early Christians, they would all individually sell their goods. And then the apostles would collect, um, all the funds. And there was this, um, I'm, I'm not gonna say communist that has its own connotations, connotations with it, but, yeah. but like a commune type of. Mm-hmm situation here. Um, and then, and then we have, and there's a few passages I want to read from, uh, some of the church fathers and there's a lot more. I just chose these ones. I don't know why, but there's, there's a lot more <laughs> of time. Yeah. Um, so St. Ambrose in the, the fourth century says, and these are, <laughs> I was presenting a retreat on Catholic social teaching last month. And after I read these, there was time for discussion and someone chimed in uh, and said something like, and not with any confrontation or bitterness at all, just kind of like stating the fact of like, these statements kind of taste like vinegar and you know, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. And, and I was like, yeah, they do taste like vinegar. Um, But they're also there. And they're a part of our tradition and a part of our teaching. And we can't, therefore we can't ignore them. Mm -hmm. We have to let them sting us because they're there. So St. Ambrose from the fourth century says, you are not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you are giving him back what is his. You have been appropriating things that are meant to be for the common use of everyone but the earth belongs to everyone and not to the rich. St. Gregory the Great in the seventh century says that when we provide the needy with their basic needs, we are giving them what belongs to them, not to us. And then, and then the last one I'm sharing is from St. Rose of Lima from the 16th century. She says that when we serve the poor and the sick, we serve Jesus and we must not fail to help our neighbors because in them we're serving Jesus. This tradition goes back to, I mean, it, it goes back to the Old Testament, like we've talked about, but we hear this even in John the Baptist, where he's like, if you have two coats, give your second coat to the person who doesn't have a coat. But in this tradition from the church fathers is the idea, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about, um, have our episode on the common good, where if you have extra and someone doesn't have enough, mm-hmm. you are stealing from the person who doesn't have enough. It doesn't matter how you got extra, even if you got it without breaking the law or scamming anyone, you are still stealing. And this tastes like vinegar, Um, but it's there. The, uh, so in the late 1800s, under Pope Leo the 13th. So the 1800s is a period of tremendous 
tremendous conflict for the church. Um, from the French Revolution in 1789 throughout the 1800s, the church goes from the largest landowner in Europe to losing everything really except Vatican City. Mm -hmm. um, and you have all these, all these revolutions, again, starting with the French Revolution. And there was a real and not, un, not entirely unjust sentiment in these revolutions because of how closely the church was connected with um, the autocrats who were abusing their power. Down go the autocrats down go the church. Um, right. And in the wake of this, we see the rise of the industrial revolution and new ideologies in response to that. So in particular, we see the rise of liberalism, um, which would be like modern day libertarianism. And you see the rise of socialism and communism. And you see the, the poor and the working class being absolutely exploited by anyone who has power. Right. So Pope Leo steps into this and he says, actually scripture and tradition have a lot to say. Um, so he st steps into this discussion on behalf of workers, on behalf of those who are being exploited uh, with the, with his encyclical Rerum Novarum. And um, this is the first time, this is the first, um, what we would call now, social encyclical of the church. So he brings together this great wealth of tradition and puts it in one place for the first time. And then pretty much every Pope since him has written at least one, if not multiple social encyclicals in response to the, uh, to the conflicts that are going on in that particular generation. Um, I wanted to share a, a passage from, uh, from the catechism that talks about how this relationship between the Pope and the magisterium and what's going on in the world works. So this is from, from catechism 2422. The church says that, uh, the church's social teaching comprises a body of doctrine, which is articulated as the church interprets events in the course of history with the assistance of the Holy Spirit in the light of the whole of what has been revealed by Jesus Christ. So in other words, the church, aided by the Holy Spirit, reads the signs of the times, reads the conflicts, reads the needs, mm -hmm. reads what oppression is going on, what injustices are happening, and with the Holy Spirit uh, asks, essentially, what does the revelation of Jesus Christ have to say about what's going on? Uh, so the catechism continues, this social teaching can be more easily accepted by men of goodwill, the more the faithful let themselves be guided by it. The church's social teaching proposes principles for reflection, provides criteria for judgment, and gives guidelines for action. So the church's social teaching is not simply another political party or simply mm -hmm. another ideology. It's not a set of policies. It's principles for reflection, criteria for judgment and guidelines for action. So it's meant to, it's, 
The church proposes her social teachings so that the faithful receive them, integrate those principles in their consciences, in their minds, and then enacts them into the world in whatever time, place, culture, political party, ideology that they are participating in. I think a great, a great metaphor, one that I like to think of, is like a, a ferment or an enzyme. Uh, and we're made to, as you've said, ingest these and then do the best that we can to employ them or bring them to bear in whatever our situation is. And invariably, we're not ever going to live in the best possible culture, best possible world situation or legal system or economy. So we intake these ideas and they're not, um, like you said, it's not a political party that we join. There's the right, the left and the Catholic. It's, eh, it's more, it is more complex than that. It's more mature and it's more adult than that. These are core ideas that we take in. They then inform how we wrestle with and resonate with uh, anything else that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, my hope is that as we go through these principles um, throughout this season, that everyone will find themselves pretty uncomfortable at different points. Um, one of the first times that I was really clued into this um, was, was again in 2016, I read the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB. They, they release an update, a uh, voter's guide every few years called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. And um, my favorite part from that document, this is what it says. As citizens, we should be guided more by our moral convictions than by our attachment to a political party or interest group. When necessary, our participation should help transform the party to which we belong. We should not let the party transform us in such a way that we neglect or deny fundamental truths or approve intrinsically in evil acts. In other words, we are called to be light and leaven in whatever party, ideology, or movement that we're a part of. We must not let the values of those parties and movements that are contrary to the kingdom of God to corrupt us, to be a false light or false leaven or false gospel. Right. Um, and this is a principle I can't emphasize enough. We have to take this seriously because it is extremely easy to compromise our principles and our integrity for the sake of belonging, for the sake of expediency, for the sake of uh, like trying to consolidate political power. But as soon as we compromise, we've lost, we've ceased being light and leaven. As soon as we've let these other values influence us, then what good are we? We're no different than anybody else in these parties and in these movements. Yeah. Keep right on going. Anything <laughs> else to add at this point? Um, I mean, I saw this a lot. I see this a lot. So um, there's a lot about um, the principles of, of the Democratic Party that I align with because of my Catholic beliefs and Catholic values. But then I see so many Catholics, Catholic leaders in of the Democratic Party um, sell out the principles 
that don't align with the party for the sake of getting along or for the sake of what they perceive to be as some greater good. Likewise, there are some things in the conservative party that I align with because of uh, my Catholic values. But I also see so many Catholics in the Republican party who sell out the principles that don't align with the Republican party in order for what they perceive to be some greater good. And I mean, I, I did that. Like I was that person. I was there. Uh, but I think that that, that selling out of values, uh, like not only is it bad for us individually, like not only does that like wear on our own soul, but it is also, it is an anti-witness. It's an anti-witness to anyone who's watching us and the world's watching us. The world is watching. How are these Christians responding to this? How are, how are they acting in the midst of these political conflicts? Yeah, and is, by and large, pole star. yeah. And by and large in the U S Catholics vote no different than non-Catholics. And that's a problem because Catholics are the largest denomination in the U S if we voted based on Catholic principles, our politics would be a heck of a lot better, right? Uh, we have a Catholic supermajority in the Supreme court. We have, we have a Catholic in the white house. We have so many Catholics in Congress and that doesn't count all the Catholics in political office at the state levels. And it's clear by where our politics are at now that we as voters and as politicians uh, are not putting our values first. We are letting our party values influence us. Yeah. Um, and along these lines then, Catholic social teaching really calls us as Christians to examine our political and ideological beliefs with a critical eye, not to just abandon them, right? The church never calls us to blind obedience, but to examine them with honesty and to, and the Catholic social teaching invites us to embrace the upside down values of the kingdom of God that puts others first, that values the vulnerable more than the powerful, mm -hmm. that chooses integrity to principles mm -hmm. over and above security or power. Um, in Fratelli Tutti, which is um, the most recent social encyclical written by uh, Pope Francis in 2020, and I'll be referencing this one quite a bit throughout this season. There's one line in there where the Pope is, uh, I, I appreciate his honesty here. So he says this, certainly all of this, referring to Catholic teaching, certainly all of this calls for an alternative way of thinking. Without an attempt to enter into that way of thinking, what I'm saying here will sound wildly unrealistic. On the other hand, the Pope says, if we accept the great principle that there are rights born of our inalienable human dignity, we can rise to the challenge of envisioning a new humanity. We can aspire to a world 
that provides land, housing, and work for all. And this is the true path of peace. Like he's honest that if we don't first question our worldly values, this will sound wildly unrealistic. Mm -hmm. But if we're willing to adopt an alternative way of thinking, a gospel way of thinking, this is the path forward. I think it's time for us to start wrapping up. I wish I could say something that sounded profound and coherent, but I'm just <laughs> taking it in and processing it, probably like <laughs> our listeners. So uh, yeah, how should we wrap this up then today? Yeah, so I think a couple more things um, to try and like drill this down to a little bit more, like what do we walk away with as individuals? Um, the first is, well, yes, the first, like I said, is to try and be less attached to examine critically our own values, or even to step back further than that and recognize we have political values and ideological values that we've probably not examined. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing. The second is that Catholic social teaching being this God wanting to bring about his kingdom in this earth calls us to consider more than the bare minimum. It calls us to consider something far beyond the question of whether or not this action is a sin to, to instead ask the question, is this what God wants? Is this going to advance the kingdom of God? Um, th there's a text that, uh, from the 1930s called the son of justice about Catholic social teaching written by a man named Harold Robbins. And he has this line. He says that, uh, our outlook on society has been too much in terms of the confessional and too little in terms of the city of God. A man could avoid the sin of being theologically drunk every night of his life, but also give a very poor impression to his neighbors of the virtue of temperance. In other words, he's saying, and I think correctly, we spend too much time thinking about the floor. What is the bare minimum of whether or not this is a sin? And we don't actually look at, are we building the kingdom of God? Mm -hmm. So that's the second invitation I have is to like, Again, this alternative way of thinking of like, stop asking, I get it. Not that whether or not something's a sin isn't an important question, but we're called to greater questions than that. Yeah, if that's, if that's where you start, if your, your orientation, as soon as you walk into a situation is, where are the edges? Um, as opposed to what can we do here? What could life be like? Who could I become? What's the goal? Where are we going? I think that is that is so much more in in line with the gospel. And then once you have that orientation, then you worry about where the drop off points are. Yeah, and I think actually, if we focus on if we focus on Jesus and we focus on the kingdom, and we direct our hearts towards that, then the question of whether or not something's a sin almost becomes irrelevant. Because if our hearts are changed, we're not asking where the boundaries are. Um, and that's, I think the last point is to recognize that Catholic social teaching is a very high bar. It's an impossibly high bar because it is, and it's, it's the work of bringing about God's kingdom on earth. And when we look at the earth and we look at how terribly corrupt it is, mm -hmm. we realize that that work is impossible. 
but we're still called to that work. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So this is where it ties into the idea of, of theosis that we spent a lot of last season talking about is that in order to follow and embrace and live out Catholic social teaching, we must first recognize that God's desire is not simply for individual people to be saved, but for the whole human race to be saved. Right. We heard this in one of the Sunday, Sunday readings in September, right. From Paul's letter to Timothy, God desires all to be saved, but not just all people, all of creation he's bringing back to himself. So when we think of salvation, we have to step out of an individual view of salvation. Think about a universal view of salvation. Right. And recognize that when we talk about bringing all people and all of creation back to God, that's my work. When God gave Adam and Eve work in the garden, the Hebrew verbs for that were avad and shamar, which are important because those are the same verbs that the priests of God did later on in the story at the temple. This work of being this mediator between creation and God and bringing creation back to God. That is our work. Catholic social teaching is a part of that priestly work of the people of God. So we must allow the Holy Spirit to first transform our hearts and transform our minds so that we are more like Christ so that then we can go and be Christ in the world and do that work of bringing about his kingdom. So this is not a task we can just go and do by our own effort. It's one that is first internal and then moved by the Lord goes out and does the work. Beautiful. I think it's a great place to actually take a moment to thank our sponsor because that's exactly the kind of thing they're trying to do with Christian families in the Holy Land. So uh, this show is brought to you through select international tours. We're incredibly grateful to uh, be sponsored by them and to help spread the news of the amazing work that they're doing. As they say, more Catholic leaders choose select international tours than any other pilgrimage company. With 35 years of award-winning travel planning, they have a track record of excellence and faithfulness, and they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, which is helping Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel, or if you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Um, so Dominic, I wanted to ask you, so where are you at now with Catholic social teaching after this discussion? Oh, I'm, I, I mean, you outlined the four key areas and I'm very interested now to, to go and unpack those. Part of my, um, traditionalist upbringing outlined this massive conspiracy of history for the last 400 years or so of this progressive deracination, dechristification of time and of culture and of place. And maybe there's some of that that's been happening. But it was all too neat, and the bow was tied a little too tight. And as I go back and now look at these great revolutions of um, the last 400 years or so, all I can see is, ah, here's a point where the church didn't live up to her mission. Here's where she got the teachings wrong and implemented them wrong. And almost every single one of the core reasons why there was this revulsion of, of human culture was, 
we refuse to calcify according to this misunderstanding, this uh, inappropriate and inadequate implementation of how God expects us to function as human beings together in, in community. Um, we are in a funny place today, and there's a lot that is now being rediscovered. And I see, but I'm now hearing that these teachings that you're, we're going to tackle uh, and that you've talked about um, in this, uh, this next season are, there's their distillations of things that just were so obvious, but that we missed them in an institutional sense over the last 400 years. I think maybe monasteries got them and religious communities got them maybe uh, because there was a greater mystic intentionality to living out the Beatitudes and so on. Corporate world at large, corporate culture, um, so on. Had, that stuff hadn't been bridged yet. And then the, uh, there's the changes in our, the last 400 years been so dynamic and so fast that we're just reeling trying to catch up with them this past century has forced us to really take stock of a lot of stuff very quickly and within single lifetimes to sift and reevaluate what truly is important um and it's wonderful to finally get clarity on this stuff now so that we can do the best that we can for the next generation yes so, uh, one of the sponsors of the show, I guess not even a sponsor, this show comes from, uh, my work at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. Um, uh, you can subscribe there. It's, it's a newsletter, subscribe to the podcast. You can become a, a paid subscriber. You get to watch these episodes early, um, have access to some, some Q and a events, some other things like that, but most of all, you get to support, um, the work that I do, the resources that I'm able to make. Uh, this podcast and a lot of other things. So please check out PopeFrancisGeneration.com. Yeah. And this, this show is also brought to you by smart Catholics. So if you enjoyed this video, if it was helpful and you're watching this on YouTube, please hit the like button. It does help more people hear more about this show. And we've had humbling and beautiful feedback from people who've been enjoying this show. So, um, our community, Smart Catholics, is a place where people can meet up. It's like a home away from Facebook. It's a free Catholic community, free of trolls and ads and toxicity, faithful to the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and the Church. And we're committed to a culture of kindness and learning. So if that sounds like you, come and check us out, smartcatholics.com. If you have questions uh, that you would like us to answer, perhaps in the next episode, Paul, where can people go to leave feedback? Yep, you uh, always go to popefrancisgeneration.com. That's the home for this. There's, there's the answer. So friends, till next time, please say a short prayer for yourself and uh, for us. And remember, don't be afraid to have doubts and to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.